This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Hello and welcome. I'm Wynne Burkle. I'm uh, the director of Rand Corporation's Office of Congressional Relations here in Washington, D.C. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this uh, Rand briefing on the potential future collapse of the North Korea, Korean regime particularly to illustrate the hidden pitfalls and dangers of such a collapse and what that would mean for both South Korea, the United States, and for regional stability, um, and why it is so critical for us to begin preparation for that now, for policymakers to think about that. Um, before we begin, I'd like to just do a few housekeeping notes. I'd like to introduce our presenter today, Bruce Bennett, who we're very pleased to have here. Um, author of the recently released groundbreaking RAND report, which all of you should have copies of, uh, preparing for the possibility of a North Korean collapse. Fun reading at the beach. Um, Bruce is a senior defense analyst at RAND uh, who works primarily on research topics such as strategy, force planning, counterproliferation, and he works primarily within the RAND International Security and Defense Policy Center. His work applies military simulation and analysis, wargaming, risk management, deterrence-based strategy, and competitive strategies. Um, He specializes in asymmetric threats such as WMD and how to counter those threats with new strategies, operational concepts, and technologies. Bruce is also an expert, as many of you know, in Northeast Asian military issues particularly. He's visited the region more than 90 times and written much about Korean security issues. His Northeast Asian uh, research has addressed issues such as the future South Korean military force requirements, Korean military balance, counters to North Korean chemical and biological weapons threats in Korea and Japan. In fact, he testified about the biological weapons component this past Friday um, at HASC's um, uh, IETC, Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee. Um, uh, Changes in the Northeast Asia security environment, deterrence of nuclear threats, including strengthening the U.S. security, uh, nuclear security umbrella. He's worked with uh, OSD, Defense Threat Reduction Agency, U.S. Forces Korea and Japan, U.S. PACOM, uh, South Korean and Japanese militaries, and the South Korean National Assembly. I'm not going to go on because I could go on that list for a while. So with that, I think let's turn it over to Bruce. Thank you, Wynn. Pleasure to be here today. Many of you have probably heard speculations in the past about the collapse of North Korea. Uh, Back 15, 20 years ago, there was a lot of discussion as North Korea went through its famine in the late 90s. It didn't happen yet. That doesn't mean it can't or couldn't happen sometime in the coming years. I think if you go back to Europe in the early or mid-1980s, there weren't many people who would have said that East Germany couldn't collapse, but on the other hand, nobody was predicting that I know of that collapse when it actually happened in the 1989-1990 time frame. And so that led me to become interested in this subject. That is, I was interested because as I think about the problem, We don't know when it's going to happen, or for sure if it will, but we're not terribly well prepared for it if it does happen. And so I propose to the Smith Richardson Foundation that we look at that subject, talk about the consequences if we aren't better prepared, and then turn to what we could do to mitigate some of those consequences. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. But to start off, what I want to suggest is there are clearly weaknesses in North Korea. 
The, one of the recent commanders in South Korea for the U.S. forces, uh, General uh, Walter Sharp, made a comment three years ago just before he finished his assignment in Korea where he said, combined with the country's disastrous centralized economy, dilapidated industrial sector, insufficient agricultural base, malnourished military and populace, and developing nuclear programs, the possibility of a sudden leadership change in the North could be destabilizing and unpredictable. And I think that's where I come down. It could be destabilizing, it could be unpredictable. We could find very challenging circumstances. So let me talk a little bit about those today. If you think about North Korea, you recognize that within North Korea there is a hierarchy of leadership. Kim Jong-un, the third generation of the Kim family, is the current leader in North Korea. There is a second tier behind him which involved potential successors to him, but with no designated successor. After all, who would designate a successor who could therefore become the leader of a coup? Uh, Similarly, his father waited very long to designate a successor. Then you have other tiers of senior leadership, your professional military, other elites, conscripts and commoners. Now this is a simplified uh, depiction, simply indicating that you have levels of leadership here. My concern is, what happens if suddenly Kim Jong-un is gone? He is assassinated. Now, you might say, oh, well, could that possibly happen in North Korea? It could. There's been at least one reported attempt in November of last year, not the report in the Chinese literature earlier last year, but one actually which may have happened. We don't know for sure. There may have been many others. If you look at the security around Kim Jong-un, it makes you worry that there may really be more of a threat to him because of the way he has changed the security from the way his father handled it. But if he is removed suddenly, it's not clear that anybody in that second tier of leadership would be in a position to take over. In fact, with the balancing that the family has always done, there's probably nobody in a really superior position. Note that even in the time of his father, in the early 2000s when his uncle became too powerful. His father pulled him out of the leadership for several years to keep that balance. We don't know for sure who is there and who might take over. Maybe someone could and become the successor leader in North Korea. But it is equally possible that you could get factions that develop. And while those factions would start at that top tier, they would over time potentially propagate down through the other tiers maybe even develop geographically, and eventually you could even see a condition resembling civil war. Why civil war? Well, the problem you face in North Korea is even now people are starving to death. Their agricultural production is inadequate. They get some support from other countries, especially China, but people still do suffer from starvation. And if you go into a, into a collapse situation, People who have food will likely hoard that food. The experience of the 2009 currency revaluation, which occurred late that year, was that people rapidly hoarded food when, they, when currency was revaluated and made a lot of money by doing that. The 
Price of food increased 1,000% in two months. And so in uncertain circumstances, you could see very difficult times in North Korea. No faction being able to sustain its own people with the resources it can control, perhaps civil war. Whoop, go the right way. If you get that kind of a situation, humanitarian disaster, civil war in the North, probably large numbers of refugees, sooner or later, South Korea and the United States may be forced to intervene. This would likely be a South Korean decision, but we may well support our ally in the process. At the same time, you could also see China choosing to intervene. That would be an interesting and potentially difficult circumstances. As we rush towards Pyongyang from opposite directions, much like the race to Berlin at the end of World War II, what exactly happens in those circumstances? And that is one of the potential challenges we would face. But there are other challenges. Compared to Iraq in 2003, which we understand we were able to handle the regular warfare part, but had difficulty with the irregular warfare as it developed, with the insurgency, well, North Korea has an army which is three times larger than the Iraqi army, even though the population of the two countries were roughly equivalent. It's got a more capable and determined military than the Iraqi military, and its reserves are roughly ten times larger than what Iraq had in 2003. And in the case of North Korea, we're really pretty sure that North Korea really does have weapons of mass destruction, as opposed to what happened in Iraq. Now, all those conditions suggest that if we choose to intervene and China chooses to intervene, not to support North Korea, but to, as most Chinese people say, deal with, with refugees and probably also with the North Korean weapons of mass destruction. Then the question becomes, what happens in that kind of situation? Conflict? A difficult time. Now, most people who look at collapse don't focus on that process. They instead jump to what I would call the long-term issues. North Korea, as much as General Sharp described, their infrastructure is dilapidated. It needs to be replaced in most cases. In some cases, it's never even been developed. If you look at the CIA World Factbook, North Korea has about 25,000 kilometers of road. Less than 1,000 are paved. Think about that in the whole country, less than a thousand kilometers of road paved. So you have tremendous infrastructure rebuilding. The South Korean uh, GDP per capita is, different people estimate, 10, 15, 20 times what it is in North Korea. If you don't solve that difference, people are going to become refugees to try and take advantage of a better economic life. But South Korea and China don't want floods of refugees into their countries. They're not prepared to manage that. So you have these long-term costs of rebuilding North Korea. But I would argue there are also a series of short-term costs. The humanitarian disaster I talked about, the potential of civil war. And civil war, by the way, where different factions have weapons of mass destruction and may use them. And they may not only use them against each other, they may use them against South Korea, maybe other countries, in part to induce the intervention that they may seek. 
given that it may be difficult to determine who has actually used those weapons. You also have a whole series of other issues, therefore the defense of South Korea, potential for insurgency and criminal activity to develop in the North, of course the Chinese intervention we talked to, and simply the whole process of educating people in North Korea about the reality of the world, which they have been sheltered from for decades. You also have medium-term issues. One of the biggest issues Germany struggled with in unification was property rights. Who owns property? You have exactly the same kind of problem in South Korea, with many people in South Korea claiming property in the North based upon property rights they had before the Second World War and the separation of the Koreas. That could lead to real conflict in terms of the situation. Other issues as well there to be handled. So what are these consequences if we are not well prepared? Well, we start with humanitarian disaster and warfare. You can then add a series of other kinds of consequences. Damage that could occur in North Korea. If we think that the infrastructure is badly damaged now or dilapidated, and you get warfare that develops, potentially with weapons of mass destruction use, things could get significantly worse. You could have instability in the North, a worsened humanitarian disaster because of these things, and many, many refugees. Years ago, the Bank of Korea projected that in a North Korean collapse, there could be as many as three million refugees from North Korea come into South Korea. Three million refugees. Now, now in South Korea, you have a little over 20,000 North Korean refugees. And many people in South Korea think that they're choking already on the number of refugees. They're hard to assimilate. They haven't been well educated, by and large, some exceptions, of course. But if you've got three million refugees, think what would happen to your unions, to housing, to all kinds of societal requirements. And so that would be an interesting challenge. In the process of all of these things, even if South Korea were able to go into the North, unify the country, many North Koreans could become disaffected and decide that this is really not what they had hoped for. And in fact, that could only lead to support for potentially an insurgency or criminal behavior. If that happened, you could have difficulty actually securing a unification, about actually having the capability to peacefully unify the country. Think of Iraq in 2005 and 2006. Had not actions been taken to get that under control, things would have really spun out of control. And of course, some people think they're already out of control again. But things could have been much worse. Other issues, damage to South Korea. There's no guarantee that as weapons of mass destruction and other military forces get used, it would be limited to North Korea. The South Korean society could be disrupted either by that or by the refugees, and again, problem unifying. And of course, you have the whole situation with China. If China intervenes, how do we prevent war with China? As we rush towards Chinese forces and they rush towards our forces, and some poor lieutenant on the front line has to make a decision of shaking hands or something else, 
there are all kinds of chances for accidents that could develop and blow up, which we would not want to have happen. Let's look at some of these in more detail and talk about what we could do about them. In terms of humanitarian aid, North Korea has had two censuses, one in 1993, one in 2008, each paid for by the United Nations. In the census from 2008, if you look at the population distribution, you have about 9 million people living in the coastal counties of North Korea. Internally, only a small population south of Pyongyang. <clears throat> that is heavily an agricultural area, so you don't have a large population. Much more people in the Pyongyang area and further north in the interior. Now, if you had to deliver humanitarian aid into North Korea, you would say, well, humanitarian organizations can handle that, couldn't they? But in the case of a civil war ongoing, in the case of gangs and the military taking a severe role in the north, if humanitarian organizations take the food into the north, they are unlikely to get to the people. This is going to most likely have to be a military escorted effort. Military to both make sure food distribution works properly and to create stabilization. Because you are going to have to try to stabilize the situation. So traditionally we think about the army going into the north to do that kind of thing. The problem is the area they're going into is not heavily populated. It's a long way away from the rest of the population. And those roads are rather limited. Our ability to send the amount of humanitarian aid in that way is difficult. <clears throat> One thing we might do is to task the South Korean and U.S. Marines to be able to deliver aid along the coastline. Now, it would be nice to take aid in through the ports, but the ports in North Korea are very limited. There are only a few. They're not high capacity, and by and large. So being able to deliver aid across the beach would also be very helpful in many areas. And our Marine Corps could do that and help to explain what we're trying to do. But eventually, to get aid into the interior of the country, it's going to have to be air forces to do that. Now, they'll have to wait till they get the air defenses under control, but and there are not a lot of airfields there. So some of that will have to be airdropped. Now you look at the different requirements for aid. North Korea consumes about 15,000 tons of food per day. If the worst happens, which is that food is totally hoarded in the north, and we need to break that pattern, <clears throat> we may need to insert more food than is consumed per day in order to convince people that they ought to release what they're hoarding. They're not going to make more money on it. That may mean that we had to deliver up to the 15,000 tons. If so, that would be about 7,500 tons by air, revisiting the Berlin airlift kind of thing. <clears throat> that would take about 135 C-17 sorties a day for aircraft that we have, what, about 120 of today in the world? It would be challenging. Now, if you move to C-130s, got many more of those aircraft, only takes about 500, 550 sorties of those per day. That would also be hugely challenging, even for the US. Big concern with North Korea would, of course, be demobilizing the military. 
Now, there's a huge literature on demobilization of military forces. <clears throat> that literature usually turns to two alternatives. One is civil reintegration. Basic concept is essentially what happened in Iraq. Thank you very much. You're no longer a soldier. Go home. Good luck finding a job. Now, this is in a society which doesn't have a great employment base to start with. There aren't going to be many jobs for those people. And so by doing that, you probably increase the probability of people migrating into both insurgency and criminal activity. <clears throat> this is particularly true if you remember the fact that North Korea, according to the South Koreans, have about 200,000 special forces. <clears throat> Think what 200,000 insurgents in the North could do. It would be a disaster. 100,000 even. 50,000 even would be a serious problem. An alternative would be to keep all of those people in military service. Now, the North has about 1.2 million on active duty. The South has right now a little over 600,000, so you're getting close to 2 million people on active duty. That would be a severe burden for the South, which wouldn't be very productive. And you'd worry about the reliability of those people with lots of weapons, and so you probably reject keeping many of them in the military. Some, perhaps, but not a whole lot. The alternative which we propose is what I call public service. But in doing this, I'm not suggesting you dissolve the military. Instead, I'm saying, go into a typical military unit, like a battalion of about 500 or 600 soldiers. Disarm them. Take away their weapons. Take away their munitions. But then tell them, Colonel, your job is to fix that three kilometers of road. You're to go work that road so that I can get humanitarian aid into the interior of the country. And I respect the ranks and privileges of those people so that I don't turn them into insurgency. Because this will be very important to their culture. That is an alternative we could pursue. Why keep them in a military-like organization? I want to do this rapidly, but I also want the opportunity to come back and debrief these people. I want to be able to find out information about them. I want to apply biometrics to convince them that if they go into criminal activity, I'm going to be able to track them down. I want to be able to do a variety of things to impose military discipline. If they desert, they understand military discipline and the implications. And I want to have that leverage. Over time, I'd love to train those guys doing the road how to pave roads. We need to pave lots of roads in North Korea. Once we can bring that equipment in, let them learn how to use it, and then take that battalion or two or three others like them, and they become a corporation. They have jobs. They can contract with the local provincial government and work for them paving roads. Because with all the roads they've got unpaved, they will take years to get that system under control. <clears throat> what about weapons of mass destruction? <clears throat> we don't know for sure how much weapons of mass destruction North Korea has. It appears, though, that they have substantial chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. With that in mind, one of the things we're going to want to do is to go to the storage sites and the production sites and try to collect all those things up. 
We want to make a major effort at doing that to secure the assets and eventually eliminate them, much like we're talking about doing in Syria. But that doesn't do the problem. In part, you then have to go beyond and say, if I'm worried about proliferation, I need to also police up the experts. You know, and it's not just the top scientists. Many of the technicians in their programs know things that we wouldn't want other countries to know. Things that would be very sensitive in selected areas. So there are a large number of personnel potentially that we want to collect up. Collect them up, debrief them, find out what they have done, what's been involved, that is also valuable to us, and then make sure they can be employed. South Korea has a very large nuclear industry that is expanding. Our nuclear experts can find employment in that industry. And that is something we should be prepared to tell them. Proliferation. We've also got to guard airfields and ports and border areas. We don't want things leaking out, whether it's weapons or people or even documentation of the program. We've got to be prepared to work that. Now, you might say, well, the Chinese would never let that happen. But we know already that there are relationships between the North Korean black market forces and the Chinese gangs. We don't want that to facilitate WMD proliferation. So we need to get our Chinese colleagues to cooperate with us in this kind of effort. Now, if I look at South Korea today and look at their military capabilities, they have about 22 army divisions. And that would probably give them the ability to stabilize North Korea. There's a pretty good probability they could do it, but some chance they may not be able to do it if things are handled poorly. You don't know for sure going in. Unfortunately, South Korea has one of the lowest birth rates in the world. They're getting 1.2 births per woman per lifetime. The age cohort that gets drafted has gone from over 400,000 about 10 years ago and before that for two decades. It is now down around 350,000 and is headed below 300,000 and then down by 2027 to just over 200,000. Those kids have already been born. We know how many are in that. And you have to remember the South Korean military is about 75% conscripts still. So as that age cohort goes down in size, their military is declining. They did have an army of 560,000. They're now down to 500,000. They've largely taken that out of support forces, which they didn't have a lot of to start with. But their plan by 2022 is to reduce from the current 22 divisions down to around 12 divisions. Now, this is notional data. I don't know for sure the nature of this relationship. But I'm pretty sure that if they go down to 12 divisions, that's not going to be enough, even with US assistance, to stabilize North Korea. And I tell my ROC colleagues, that means you're going to have to ask China for help in stabilizing the North. That doesn't go over very big. There are ways they could fix this, and I talk about that in one of my chapters. But it needs to be worked, and it needs to start being worked soon. You could say, well, couldn't we use reserve troops? Because South Korea has lots of reserve troops. Those troops train a maximum of three days a year. So tell me, what's your favorite baseball or football team? If they train three days a year, 
What would you count on them for to be able to do? Today, they only count on them to go up front of Seoul and be able to fire a rifle because their main focus with the reserves is replacement troops to those who get attrited if the South is, is invaded. But if they have to go into North Korea to do counterinsurgency, three days of training a year is not going to cut the requirement. And that tells you where they're headed, 2022, down into that range. Let me conclude by talking a bit about China. China has been reluctant to talk about the collapse of North Korea. Nevertheless, I've been to three different conferences run by rock organizations in South Korea this year. In each case, there have been senior Chinese personnel, mainly academics, but also the president of their National Defense University, retired, who have been present and talked about this kind of situation. And they are consistent in their depiction of the situation. They don't want those refugees that likely would head towards China in China. They already have two million ethnic Koreans in China in a rust belt area as far as the economy of the area. So adding two or three million North Koreans to that count is going to destabilize that area. They don't want that. And so they will say consistently, our doctrine, our military doctrine is to create a buffer zone inside North Korea. It may be 50 kilometers deep, it may be 100 kilometers deep. We're going to do that to deal with refugees, and if you're familiar with that area, that's mainly mountainous areas. If you've got to put together refugee camps, it's going to have to be pretty deep. They also, though, talk consistently about dealing with the North Korean weapons of mass destruction in that area. Why? Well, the Yongbyon plant, their big nuclear plant in North Korea, is about 100 kilometers south of the Chinese border would be a clear place they would want to get to. Why? Well, not only because they're concerned about North Korean weapons of mass destruction, I think they would like to relieve us of feeling the responsibility of getting there first. They don't want American troops sitting that close to the Chinese border. And if they can take those facilities and get the weapons of mass destruction under control, maybe they can convince us not to do that. Bottom line is, if you have a race for Pyongyang, we better be prepared to work quickly. Most South Koreans today are not too excited about intervening in North Korea if there's a collapse. They recognize the severe long-term cost that could exist. Again, by analogy to Germany, when Germany unified, the West German government implemented a 5% tax to support unification. Now, that was in 1990. That tax is still on the books. And Germany would be far easier in many ways than North Korea will be in terms of unification. So people are concerned about the cost. They'll probably stand back and wait till the situation develops to become difficult. But if they do, they will complicate the process of dealing with China. In addition, we have to then say, but as we race towards each other, we don't want war to happen. So let me paint two pictures. The solution at the end of World War II to this problem, we didn't want to go to war with the Soviets, was we drew a line on the German territory. And we said, east of this line is Soviet territory. West of this line is the US and Great Britain and France. 
And that was a miserable solution. But war with the Soviets in 1945 would have been a more miserable solution, I would argue. So we may need to be considering drawing a line somewhere in North Korea and saying the Chinese don't come south, we don't come north. It is a miserable solution. I don't like the idea, but it may be the least miserable option in this case. Finally, let me talk about the North Koreans themselves. North Korean elites are worried about unification for good reason. Most of them lead a more comfortable life now, not perfect, many problems for them. But I think they have to take a look at things like this. Kim Jong-il sent film crews into East Germany. They tried to track down the former East German elites and show what had happened to them. The story was not good, by and large, for the former East German elites. They weren't doing very well. And then he brought the films back, and I'm sure he made sure that he captured the worst conditions and showed it to the North Korean elites, according to this story trying to convince them that unification was not in their best interest. Well, even ignore this story. Think about the situation from the North Korean perspective. You're a senior North Korean general, a four-star general. What are you going to think about? You're going to say, gee, how have the South Koreans handled their own former presidents? Well, let's see. The former presidents of South Korea have been taken to court, thrown in jail, threatened with execution, two presidents ago committed suicide, doesn't sound like a great outcome for their own people who have been their own presidents. How are they likely to handle us, the senior North Koreans? So we need to be trying to convince the North Koreans that there really is life after unification. That has to happen in steps. We have to convince the North Koreans that South Korea is really a great country. The North Korean propaganda says the South Koreans are poorer than we are. Now, gradually over time, most North Koreans are getting to recognize that that's not the case anymore. But still, this needs to be well established. And it's not just in terms of food. Anybody can go to a university in South Korea. Not true in North Korea. Healthcare in South Korea. You really can get antibiotics. You can't, by and large, in North Korea. All of those particular situations need to be depicted. Describing South Korea as a great country, which it is, and that kind of campaign should be popular within South Korea. One then wants to go on and talk about merchants. In North Korea, merchants are not desired. The whole purpose of the currency revaluation, as best we can tell, in 2009, was to take away the working capital from the merchant class to try and prevent them from being powerful. How were they powerful? Well, they could bribe any official, get the officials to do what they wanted to do. So they were taking over power within the country. But in South Korea, they want merchants. Merchants are good. That's part of having a liberal democratic economy. In addition, you want to say, we're going to treat defectors well, People are going to live well after unification, and even the North Korean military will live well. We need to have a concept which is part of discussions that says, here's how we'll take care of the military. We're not going to shoot you guys or throw you in prison. 
At the same time, we probably want a campaign which talks about the failings of North Korea. After all, the regime has a wide variety of failures, and the fissures between the military and the, the political system are great. I just give you one simple example. Think about North Korea, where even in the military units, people are not eating very well, in cases developing diseases because of lack of food. And yet the regime has socked away some $4 billion in overseas bank accounts. Why aren't we saying that in our broadcasts into North Korea? I don't think the military would be very happy about that. Other kinds of things, looking at seeking defectors. We don't know a whole lot about North Korea. Their WMD programs, government, and so forth. We need to be focused on getting some defectors. If we had high-level defectors, we'd know a whole lot more about what was going on. And there are a lot we could be doing to attract those people. All right, so where are we? Key takeaways. If we don't prepare better for collapse in North Korea, and I'm not predicting that collapse is imminent, it may not happen for 5 or 10 or 20 or 30 years. But if we don't prepare for it, when it does happen, the consequences could be severe. And we don't want those consequences to develop. In fact, if we do prepare for it, we will prepare not only for a collapse, many of the same preparations would help if we had peaceful unification of Korea. Or even if there was no unification. If there was better feelings between the North and the South, the elites in North Korea weren't alienated by the South, I think that would be a better environment to live with. So we need to be working that. In order to do that, we need to be working with our Korean allies to work through these issues. Korea needs to take the lead on this, but we need to be supportive of their efforts. That's the major message I'd like to leave with you, and I'll conclude by saying I'm very happy to talk with people about this subject. My purpose in writing this was to get the issue on the table. It's not being discussed very much, certainly in our country, but even in Korea. And I'm anxious to get the subject discussed because I think that's the beginning for preparations. Thank you very much. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.